this summer I've been doing pulpit supply at different places, and I ask, how's everyone doing? And there's no uniform answer to that. Everyone, you say, good morning, everyone says, good morning. You say, how's everyone doing? And some people are like, well, all right, good. And, you know, you can't really be personable in your answer when you're asking 50 people at the same time. But uh, anyways, okay, so we're going to be in Luke 20 today. <clears throat> Luke 20. And I guess you guys haven't made this far in Luke, have you? I guess I'll, I'll be your John the Baptist. So. <clears throat> uh, let's, uh, let's read the text, and then uh, we'll start. So we're in Luke uh, 20. We'll start with verse 1 here. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes uh, with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Uh, he answered them, I will, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they convinced John was a prophet. So they answered, uh, so that they answered, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell them this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. It went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Um, first of all, when you read that much scripture, most people get scared how long the message is going to be. But uh, it shouldn't be that long. So to make sure we're following the time. Um, rebellion in authority, rebellion against authority is a key topic today as it was several thousand years ago. When the people heard this, they thought, wow, such rebellion. We hear it today, we think, you know, how could they have done such a thing as that? Uh, I, I work at a daycare, and it's, if you were to ask any of the teachers in my daycare, as progressive the educational system is today, and you said, uh, you know, are children rebellious? The, within seconds, they say, yeah, of course. You know, if you just watch a kid and you say, you know, stop, they don't stop, sit down, they stand. Or they ask why, and then just keep standing there. Um, and uh, it, it just it looks like every child is just inherently rebellious. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, before my time, um, should make you feel old. That's kind of the first thing. Uh, uh, I remember a story. My dad told me when he was in high school, there was an assembly where the principal was trying to get the children to leave, the high school students to leave. And they uniformly chanted, heck no, we won't go. Well, 
you know, that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being genteel because it's church. And, um, and, and they, so they chanted this for a while, and, and the principal lost control of the assembly, and it lasted for quite some time. Is that right? Okay. You know, and, and that was kind of, I guess, the scene of the 60s and 70s was these high school kids, college kids, perhaps some of you were involved with this, chanting this, and it's a good sign of sanctification that you're here today. But, <laughs> but there was a, uh, a, 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 it seemed to be a, a large um, rebellion against authority. We see this in the workplace. People will say, you know, an employer will say, you know, get this done, and the employee just Facebooks and says, ah, I couldn't do it for X, Y, and Z, couldn't get it done. We see it in all the night in the news, people saying, uh, you know, we're, um, you know, six o'clock news, it's who got shot today, uh, who did white collar crime, uh, who's, who's going down for the, oh, oh, we look overseas, the Arab Spring, you know, what's happening in Syria, what's happening with Egypt, uh, you know, it doesn't matter the president, whether it's Bush or Obama, there seems to be rebellion against authority. Everywhere we look, there's rebellion, and why? So what we're going to talk about is what, what is rebellion against authority, how Jesus is the one that's only worthy of our worship, and why is he worthy of our worship? All right, so let's discuss the story here. First, the story. Jesus seemed to have been speaking about a common real estate practice. Why? Because he didn't have to explain what was happening, and it appeared that everyone properly understood the story. He's going to say, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Uh, I guess that that's a common practice. Um, uh, all the hillsides of Israel, and there are many, were covered with such vineyards. And it, it rented it out to vine growers, commonly done as well. The, this would be an absentee landlord. Uh, this would be like, in our uh, connotation in the South, it would be like sharecropping. Um, I, don't, I don't have land but I have the skill to, to harvest crops and to, to plant things. And so I'll rent the land from somebody and then give him a pro, uh, some of the proceeds from my, my, my share of crops. Um, so they, they had a contract with the owner of the vineyard to, to pay him a certain amount of, a certain percentage of the crops. And they had the, the very best of everything, really, when you think about it. They have the freedom to work the land that they want. You know, the, the owner's not over their shoulder telling them what to do. They can be as creative as they want. They don't have somebody looking over the shoulder. This is a wonderful opportunity for them. This is a great privilege as well as a great responsibility. They can work hard. They can produce the crop and will pay the owner what they contra contracted him to pay. Everything else they get to keep. So without having to purchase the land, they can get the best of it, and they can work hard and do well, making a, a pretty good living. The owner, it says, if you go back to verse 9, went on a journey for a long, long time. All journeys took a long time in those days. They didn't have boats, didn't have cars, uh, you know, maybe it was a donkey, a chariot, I don't, probably not a chariot, if I could stick a standing for a long time. But... <laughs> um, but it was a long time, and uh, in fact, such a long time uh, away that he doesn't even come back between the time he contracts with the people to plant and the time of harvest. Uh, so it's you know, a number of months. So in verse, uh, verse 10, uh, harvest comes. So the master sent a slave to obtain some of the produce of the land. This would be the agreed upon amount, saying, you know, give me 50% uh, of the crops. You know, he wouldn't have let them start producing the crops unless there was, both of them, a verbal agreement, perhaps probably a written contract 
about how much they would pay. Uh, and this, again, was a very common practice. So the shocking part happens, however, when it says that the tenants beat the servant. To an audience of first century Jews, the thought of this would have been completely unjust. In fact, uh, the text says they sent him away empty-handed, perhaps implying they even robbed him. They didn't just not give him anything. They may have taken what he did have. Um, not to pay the servant was illegal. The servant was the vice regent representing the owner. To beat the servant was to slap the owner in the face. Now, in verse 11, we see something marvelous. In verse 11, the owner sends another uh, servant. Now, most, of the, uh, most people in the audience would say, well, uh, we know how this ends. Uh, the, the owner is going to come in, guns a-blazing, probably start just whipping, beating everyone, take him to court, and uh, g- get justice. But he doesn't. He sends just another servant. Uh, to just uh, pay what was the original amount uh, agreed upon. He's not looking for punitive damages. He's not looking for um, in any type of, uh, of covering any losses he might have had accrued by beating his servant. He's not looking to get his name back. He just sends another servant to say, okay, I'm giving you another chance. Just abide by the original contract. That's it. Just abide by it. But they beat him, and they beat him worse. They treated him shamefully. In verse 12, he sends a third servant. This one they beat even more severely than the first two. He's given them every opportunity to respond to the contract they had made. If they act in malice and wickedness, he responds with grace. For he is absorbing the cost of his beaten servants. He's absorbing the cost of the shame he allows to go on when they beat his servants. Uh, and finally, in verse 13, he asks them the question, What shall I do? And reckons, I will send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him. So the inheritance may be ours. The tenants knew the son by seeing him. Yet they didn't recognize him as the owner of the land. Instead, they began to plot to kill him. This is premeditated murder. Perhaps they think that the father had died and the son was coming to collect his inheritance. It was Jewish customs. Uh, it was a Jewish custom that if a tenant, a uh, farmer, uh, uh, produce crops in the land for three years while no one claimed the, the owner of the ownership of the land for them to actually assume ownership. So perhaps they thought it's been such a long time that if it's just lapsed even further, if the son were to be dead, it would just fall into our hands. We would own the land. So if the owner never comes back and the son dies, it'll just be ours. And if the owner comes back after a number of years, you won't have anything to do. It's our land. So the previous servants were seen as representatives of the owner. The son, however, was seen to, to be as equal as the father since he was the son. And, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They didn't want him to, to ruin the ground for the grapes. How noble of them. They, they, didn't, they thought the blood, especially in Jewish custom, if there's blood that's spilled within the vineyard, it would ruin uh, the, the crops. And so they took him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus then tells his audience that the owner of the land will kill the tenants and place new ones in there. But when the leaders heard this, they shouted, surely not. Uh, this is the, the, the greatest Greek uh, negative uh, contrast. It's almost as to saying, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not going to happen. Why? Because they knew it was not just an Aesop's fable or some story that had a virtuous point at the end. Rather, Jesus was speaking to them and they knew it. So authority, 
People heard this and they thought, wow, this is unbelievable. People could have this much problem with authority. Authority in many ways seems as something that only children struggle with. When I, when I Googled struggling with authority, by and large, the most popular sites that popped up were sites dealing with children. You know, how to correct behavior problems with your son, uh, how to deal with an angry child. Uh, most psychologists, however, would argue that all people have something in their lives acting as an authority. But what is this authority, and how do so m- many people rebel against authority? Now, it's important to note that authority and control are two very different things. Okay, we often equate the two as being the same, but they're very different. Uh, authority, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, control says, uh, you know, it's might. The connotation is might. It says, you will obey me or else. Uh, it demands it from behavior modification. Dictator rolls in, says, all right, you have no more rights. You're going to follow me. There's no more election. There's no more. You will just give me what is mine or I will take it. It's mine. Okay, that's control. That's different from authority. Authority, on the other hand, says, look, obey me, but because of my position, but because of what I've done. Uh, obey me because of my right in your life to be your authority. The difference with uh, control is might. Authority is right. I have a right to, for you to obey me. Um, so when control or obedience is taken away, an authority, we gladly lay it down. Now, here's the deal. So often in our lives, we find ourselves rebelling against people and institutions that have the right to demand our obedience, but why? Okay, we look around, we say, man, why am I, you know, bad husband, bad wife? Uh, Why do I disobey the law? Uh, Hopefully not too much for your own sake. But um, why are we doing these things? Why are we rebelling? Well, the answer is is really quite simple. The reason is there's a difference between uh, functional authority and theoretical authority. Now, just follow me on this for a second. It sounds like a lot, but it'll make sense when give some examples. Uh, So we may say the government has the right to demand our obedience, but when we drive 40 miles per hour over the speed limit, what we say is, well, the government would like us to go this speed. uh, I'm not going to. What's underlying is that the government is making a suggestion, and you don't like it, so you don't submit functionally, you're saying the government has been weighed and judged by my authority, and although I've considered it, I have a better plan. So theoretically, you say the government's in control, but functionally, you say I'm in control. You see that? There's a difference. So we say, why are so many people rebelling? Well, we're really rebelling against what we say is authority, but we're really not rebelling about what we functionally say as as an authority. Another example is your boss. Uh, The boss says, do the TPS reports. I don't really know what that is, but in a lot of movies, a lot of people do TPS reports. (laughs) And it sounds like business lingo, so I said. Instead, you sit on Facebook until 10.50 and say, sir, it took so long, I couldn't couldn't get them done because X, Y, Z, and happened. What you're saying is your boss would like to have, you know, you would say has the right in your life to tell you what to do. But it's it's really a suggestion. When it comes down to, I don't really want to do that. And you weigh it, and and as ultimate judge, you say, that's not what I want to do. Now, I say this to say that rebellion isn't really happening because we're actually not rebelling against functional authority. Whatever we place as highest importance in our life as judge and authority, we orient our behavior to fit. Let me say that again. Whatever we place as highest importance in our life as judge and authority, we orient our behavior to fit. I'm reading this just because um, I know it can sound like a lot if I don't get this just right, I guess. Um, The problem is that it only looks like rebellion is going on because the things we say we obey, we aren't because we don't consider them functional authority. 
Okay, so most theologians call the thing we consider our highest authority, our functional authority in life, the thing we worship. Said another way, whatever we orient our behavior to align with and meet certain goals is the thing that we worship. For example, someone could have an affair and later say, I don't know how I did, how did I rebel? How could I have acted so rebelliously? Well, to discover the truth of how they, they acted, you actually have to ask the flip side of that. You actually have to ask, um, what were you worshiping because what you were worshiping is a thing you were not rebelling against, but obeying. In obeying the desire, you committed adultery. The problem isn't that you rebelled. The problem is that you obeyed. <clears throat> See the flip side? Yes, the problem is that you rebelled against God's will. But even more, you did it because you trumped God's law with something in your life as being more important, and you obeyed that desire. It may have been your desire to feel needed, so committing the affair was an act to validate how desirable you were. It then becomes an obvious stepping stone towards worshiping yourself. So if in your life, if the most important thing is your desire to be needed, and then, and then you just, um, you know, and then an affair ensues, it's a logical stepping point. If that's the most important thing, you don't ask, how could I have rebelled against God? You ask the question, how could I have worshiped myself so much? There's just a logical progression. Or how about this, uh, something less drastic than an affair. How about anger? We say, how could someone be so angry? They're acting against the social norms of how a family should look. They're always short with people, yelling, phys physically hitting things. Um, but the reality is the person is demonstrating uh, a worship for an underlying issue in their life. We ask superficially, how could they be so angry? But the real question is, what are they worshiping? What is their authority that is making them so angry? There's a child in my daycare with terrible anger outbursts. Awful, unconsoled. Uh, un I mean, he gets so angry, he gets into a fit of rage. It takes minutes to be able to talk him down. It's a, it's a little terrifying if he wasn't in second grade. And in, uh, if 10 years from now, uh, if, if, if it's not diverted, it's a, it's a little terrifying. And a lot of people walk by and say, oh, that's got to be a chemical imbalance. And I, I, I guess it could be. Um, but... What's actually happening is when, when I get to talk to him, there's always a, a, a similar root underlying problem, uh, and it's injustice. He's the youngest in his family, always feels like he's overlooked, and he feels like there's always an injustice caused to him, um, and he's going to make it right. What he's saying is, the world in which I judge my happiness to play out has been harmed. There's been a wronging in it. And now, for that world to come true, I have to physically or verbally autocorrect those around me to fit it to my imagination. And so he gets angry. He yells, not because he's rebellious, but because he's incredibly obedient to what he worships. You see the difference? We look around. Here's the, here's the giant misnomer. Just a few minutes ago, I started off this sermon talking about a rebellious world in which we live. But the reality is there is no real rebellion Everyone is perfectly worshipful and obedient to the thing that they worship. It's just perfect obedience. It's just not to God. So we become slaves to the thing that we worship. Now, how do we change that? How could the apparent rebellion ever be overcome? Well, traditionally, conservatives, this is what we've done. Um, conservatives have used the role of control. Remember, we've talked about the difference. Authority and control are two different things, right? Controls might authority is right. Traditionally, conservatives have used control to change the issue of authority. So what does that mean? Well, we look at a child, 
and say, well, he's a rebellious child. Let me change him through might. I'll control him into changing. But the reality is that child will not stop worshiping the thing he has placed as authority in his life through behavior modification. It'll just go dormant for a while or reshape itself. You say, uh, well, how is that possible? He's, he's got anger, anger problems. So if you come in and you say, I'm going to be the top dog, and I'm going to be more angry, I'm going to trump him into this, and he, he will learn that he's not in control. Well, it's not a control issue. It's a worship issue. You've got to fall to the root issue of what's happening there. A person looking, it's the same thing with addiction. A person stop, uh, looking to stop an addiction does the same thing. They'll say, okay, I need to stop drinking. I need to stop smoking. I need to stop pornography. And we'll use control to change a worship issue. But it doesn't happen. When we don't see the issue as worship and authority and instead see it as misappropriated actions, well, I just rebelled, I just acted wrong, a cycle of rigorous self-discipline and failure will ensue. Why? Because we try to change the thing we worship by force and might. and We don't buy into the thing of force as being worthy of worship, and instead we resent it and wish again for the comfort of the thing we worshiped. We look for the identity of what we worshiped. Um, uh, let me give this example. So, just, uh, and it, it, I mean, you could apply this to anything. Um, if the issue is drinking and, and the issue is escape, and the thing they worship is to escape the, the hardships, and that's what it is. Then when they drink, they think, well, I just got to stop drinking. I got to stop drinking. I'll smash the beers. I'll, you know, destroy the alcohol. That's the issue. But the thing is, if what they long for of greatest authority in their life was escape, then merely eliminating the alcohol and being controlling will not change their worship. It won't. And so there's always endless cycles with this. Why is there a cycle? Because you've never changed the worship of your heart. You've just changed the discipline of your actions. And so uh, people find great comfort in, in worshiping something, even if it's uh, a slavery to a sin. The identity, there's comfort. And so when it's really hard, it seems really bad because there's behavior modification, they seek the comfort again in the identity of, of slavery to a sin and idolatry. It, this will relate back to the parable in a second, I promise you. <laughs> People are like, what is he talking about? Um, so true change can only happen by replacing one authority for another, not by might, but by beauty. Only when something becomes more lovely will we exchange one authority figure for another. Only when uh, the escape of what alcohol can offer is changed for something more beautiful Will we go and not this and have this endless cycle? Something must be more beautiful to bring us through it, not to escape from it. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke 22. They ask him, by what authority? Remember, we talked about authority is worship. By what authority do you do these things? Or, what, or who is it that gives you this authority? They want to know. You know. Jesus is going around speaking in absolutes. Someone who is worthy of authority and the right of worship speaks in absolutes. Right? Someone with authority gives you guidelines by how to worship. When you worship something, it, everything orients your behavior towards that is the end goal. And Jesus is saying, I'm the end goal. I'm telling you how to orient your life because I'm worthy to be pursued. So he's standing in Jerusalem teaching. They want to know, why should my life be changed by what you are saying? That's essentially what they're saying. They're spiritual leaders of Israel. They're educated. They're self -dis or very disciplined, noteworthy. And they look at Jesus and think, well, here's a man who didn't go to Hebrew, Harvard Hebrew University. No. Or, or, or he isn't a military commander like we thought the future Messiah would be. 
Um, no, oh, he, he never grew up in a noteworthy area, right? Nazareth. What, what good could come from Nazareth? And he's not from a noteworthy family. Who's Joseph? And Mary? Joseph the carpenter? No. Very different from Paul. And Paul in Philippians 3 talked about all these great things. Jesus was not noteworthy. So why should I consider what he's saying to be something I place as the ultimate source of worship in my life? We're all worshipers. Essentially, this is what we're saying. We're all, we're not rebellious. We're worshiping something. And so it looks like a parent rebellion, but it's just the product of worshiping something that's not God. And so then Jesus defends himself with this parable. Through the, the, the parable of the vineyard owner's son. Keep in mind, Jesus is in the midst of the Passion Week. This is Wednesday. He's about to go to the cross on Friday, and he stands in Jerusalem defending his authority, his right for others to obey him. And this is what he says. He gives this parable. So, uh, so we told the story about what it meant. Now we're going to talk about theologically what it meant. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went to another country. Okay, then, then he sends the first servant, the second servant, third servant. Then he sends the owner of the son. What Jesus is saying is, uh, uh, in Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, the text that, uh, says that Israel is a vineyard. And it parallels this parable uh, very strongly. The Israelites, or the Jews, uh, who were scholars, would know this passage. It's a very popular passage. It talks about how the beloved is a vineyard, and it doesn't mince words that you couldn't say, well, are they not? Because then it says... Uh, the vineyard is Judah and Israel. Um, and what Jesus is saying is, you guys are a vineyard. Okay, you really want to know who I am? You really want to I'm going to start by telling you who you are, and then you'll see who I am. You are a vineyard, and your vineyard, you have religious leaders who are tenants. And in order to be tenants, you made a contract with the owner of the Mosaic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant. Now, when the time came for you to give to God what is his, for you to fulfill your covenant with him, you went in the other direction. You went... Um, in, the, in the other direction, because you didn't see the owner as the authority or having the right to obedience in your life. You saw the vineyard as being the end of worship. So when the owner sends a prophet like Isaiah, they put him in a tree and cut him in half. Or Jeremiah, who was constantly mistreated, thrown into a pit. Tradition says the Jews stoned him to death. How about Ezekiel faced the same rejection, um, or the same hatred and hostility. Amos had to flee for his own life. Zechariah was rejected and stoned, and Micah was punched in the face. Um, the uniform hostility of kings and priests and people to the prophets is one of the most remarkable features in the history of the Jews. And yet Yahweh kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet to say, to remind them of the covenant they made, to remind them that he is worthy of worship, they didn't rebel as much as they just worshiped, but the vineyard could give them, and, and it, made, it made it very easy that when a prophet come, came, they would beat him, steal from him, throw him out of the city, because that prophet stood in the way of what they worshiped. And therefore, to be obedient to it, they had to do what was necessary. They wanted the land. Prophet comes, he stands in the way, I'm going to beat him. And it's amazing, the owner of the vineyard had incredible patience. He could have come and annihilated them, took them to court, but he didn't, and he kept sending Prophet after prophet, he kept swallowing the cost. And then he does the most amazing thing. He sends a son. The owner, thinking if anyone has a right to be heard, surely it's my son. In him, all my authority is found. He's more than my representative. He is me. Surely the one who built the vineyard should have authority with these people. He is worthy of the worship by that basis alone. 
But instead, instead, the son shows up, they see him from afar, notice him, and they plot to kill him. Why? Because they wanted the inheritance for themselves. So the text says they wanted the inheritance for themselves. The son was an obstacle to what they worshipped. So they took him out of the vineyard and killed him. The text says the vineyard owner destroyed the tenants and gave the vineyard to others. So the astounding response of, surely not, no, 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 indicates that the spiritual leaders hearing this greatly disagreed with the parable. They knew what Jesus was saying. It's more than just saying, uh, you know, as a two-dimensional parable or story, I disagree with that outcome. It's what, what Christ was doing was he was saying, look, this is who you are. You're the tenants. It's not just some story I'm telling. He's saying, look, um, you know, you brood of vipers is what he called the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I created this world in which you live, and I sent you prophets. I sent you people to, to come and know who I am, and you beat them. You sent them away. You talk about Moses and all these other people in great light, but your fathers, who were the religious leaders, stoned them, beat them, uh, bad-talked them, slandered, rose up against them. But now here I am, the son of God. You ask, by what authority do I speak? I speak as the authority of my father, God, in which all authority is given to me, that in the future every knee shall bow and tongue confess that I am the Lord. Um, it reminds me, the closest thing I could think of is, um, uh, you know, common movies where it's the flip side. They, they have this guy in custody, uh, and they're kind of asking him, like, look, uh, did, you, did you kill this guy? And they're like, I don't think you understand. The whole world is, I think maybe it was a Batman movie. <laughs> I'm trying to think where I, I saw this. It was usual suspects. But it was a situation where they're interrogating this guy about this small crime. And they're like, who are, what, what did you do? And, and meanwhile, there's a more massive plot. These police don't even know what's going on. They think they have this guy for a murder, but really, he's about to take out the whole city. And the flip side's going on here. They're saying, Jesus, but, but what authority do you give this? And you're saying, by the authority that every breath you take, I've created. And though your soul and your mind rebel against me, your body depends on me. You know, in the, this world that you are seeking to discover, I created in six days. And I walked with man in the cool of the day. I wrestled with Jacob. I gave a promise to Abraham. I took Moses and the Israelites out of Israel. Uh, and then I delivered you uh, from all the people in Canaan. Uh, brought you into exile, but then brought you back and now you say, but what authority do you teach? That's like, that's, uh, the authority by which the breath you breathe to ask that question, that's by what authority? And it's like, it should be, you know, pretty eye-opening. But they refused. And three days later, these spiritual leaders conspired against the son of the vineyard owner, took him out of the vineyard and killed him so that the inheritance they desired could be theirs. Jesus didn't come to control us into worship, right? He didn't come as the military leader that the Jewish leaders thought he'd be. He will, he will come as that. But first he came as a humble servant. He went into Jerusalem on a donkey, a beast of burden, not a stallion or war horse. We want to know how to change? I talked about replacing one thing more beautiful for another thing more beautiful. Or one thing for a more beautiful thing. Jesus didn't come to control us. He came by right to be worshipped. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, the son of the vineyard owner. So the first point, why he's worthy of worship, is uh, he's creator. 
If any reason he should be worshipped, it's by creator. Jesus came into Jerusalem, the son of the vineyard owner, who had the right to command obedience because he is creator. He and only he could tell us what our true purpose is. Now, while we seek to worship and obey things in the garden, they never prove to bring us contentment and happiness. You know, uh, you know, don't want to take this too far, but, you know, um, in the garden, there's always a fruit that will be bigger the next year, or someone else produces a more lovely fruit, or, you know, fruit doesn't stay ripe for long. And so it is with things that captivate our minds to think, wow, this, if only I could have this. But it always will die, and it eventually what seemed to be a ripe fruit ends up becoming spoiled and nasty. Only one who created us can tell us our true purpose. We look at the fruit, and we say, this fruit will make us, it will identify us. It will give us identity in whatever it is. My imagination, me as judge, whatever it is. But we don't know. It's kind of like the story of Pinocchio. Um, you know, Geppetto makes Pinocchio, and Pinocchio wants to be a real boy. He says, look, I, I, I want to be a boy. And so what does he do? He leaves Geppetto's workshop, and he gets tangled up with all these other people. Ends up in a whale and ends up, you know, all these different th- places. Looking for his identity, but the only one who really could have given it to him was Geppetto, who made him. He leaves the place that can tell him how he is to act, what he's t- supposed to do, to fulfill why he is made. And he goes out into the world and looks at the fruit and says, this is how I'll be a boy. And it's only in the end until he comes back with Geppetto does he realize how he can be a boy. Uh, every comic book story is like this. You know, Superman, uh, Spider-Man. In order for them to be able to, uh, uh, even Batman more recently, in order for them to, to be able to be a, a savior, a savior motif of redemption, they have to first recognize why they're here and for what purpose. You know, uh, 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 Superman has this uh, identity crisis, and then he goes to, uh, you know, some layer and his parents tell him through some kind of crystal uh, who, who he is, what his purpose is. And then the story, then he's allowed to be redeemed. Jesus' creator creates us with purpose of how we are to be. And everything else within the garden that we worship will never give us our proper identity and purpose. So uh, the first thing is creator. You want to know what your purpose is? You want to be able to worship something? Worship something that can tell you why and who you are. Second thing is, but if that, if that wasn't enough, and really it, it isn't, uh, uh, it should be, but it, it isn't. Who was rightfully, uh, uh, but if that wasn't enough, the vineyard owner, who was rightfully desiring justice, sent his son as an advocate and as the lamb. He would come to proclaim the kingdom and demand payment, right? So the son, son's coming, but really he's to say, okay, look, uh, please, finally, finally fulfill the contract. Finally give to my father what is my father's. He would demand the payment that his father was, but he would also be the payment that his father demanded. You know, Zephaniah talks about how the, uh, Yahweh, will, his intense wrath will destroy and devour the nations. I heard, I heard a guy once say that... Uh, he was preaching, and he was like, God is so angry with you, and he's so angry, and he, you know, he's like a bear coming to rip you apart, and then he just loves you, and Jose, he buys you, he just cares for you, and then his anger subsides. And I heard that, and I was like, I guess that's kind of nice, but it's, it kind of makes God sound like, makes him sound like uh, temperamental. He's angry, he's rightfully to be angry, then he got over it. 
And it's like, ah, man, that's really... But that, and, and keep in mind, that's the difference with Islam. Islam is, uh, Allah is very angry, but hopefully what I do outweighs his anger and he can be happy. So Allah can never be a truly merciful and just God, right? Because whatever, whatever wrong there is, it's never dealt with. He just waves it, kind of like, eh, no harm, no foul. You're still pretty good. Come, come with me. But what, for someone to be truly uh, just and merciful, payment must be made and justice exacted, and, and yet God, is, uh, uh, Jesus, is the only one who can do that. Uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, he was made sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Christ took the wrath of Yahweh and Zephaniah, pouring out his hatred on the Son. He took the payment demanded us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So if we thought that Christ had any right for worship before his creator of the world, how much more should he have a right for worship by the mere fact that he stood in your place and took the wrath of the Father for you? You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says uh, he will drink the cup of wrath. In the Old Testament, the cup of wrath is, is the cup that uh, Yahweh will pour on the nations and destroy them. And it'll be like Armageddon is what we think of, just wrath. And what does he do? He takes the cup and he drinks it to the last drop so that not a drop will touch you because he didn't want you to take any of the Father's wrath. It was poured out on you. And by doing that, you get the righteousness of Christ. So while all the sins you have sinned and will sin was poured out on Christ, you get the 30 years of perfection that Christ lived. So as Christ sees you, he doesn't see you as you know, a guy who's doing pretty good, you're, you're good, outweighs your bad. He sees Christ in you, literally, the 30 years of perfection. It's called double imputation. So that when the father sees you, the vineyard owner sees you, he sees 30 years of perfection and cannot, like double jeopardy, cannot apply the same uh, um, uh, ruling again. He can't because he's a just God who's also merciful by sending his son, not just as a representative to extract payment, but as a son who is the payment. Illustration, um, there was a father and daughter in, in a forest fire uh, many years ago, and they're caught and they're running into a field, and uh, the forest fire starts to circle them and comes down closer and closer and closer. And the, the father grabs his daughter and, uh, you know, is holding her, and it, it looks like just impending doom. There's no way out of it. And the father has a lantern, and what he does is he takes the lantern, and he opens uh, the canister, and he pours uh, the oil in a circle, and he lights it on fire, and then he stomps it out. And he takes his daughter, and he holds her tight, and the fire starts getting closer and closer, and it's just feet away, and the daughter cries out, Father, Father, that the flames are going to burn us. And the father says, no, because the fire cannot burn what's already been burned. That is the reality of Christ. The vineyard's son, vineyard owner's son, taking the wrath of the owner so that we might be saved. And the fire passes the circle and goes on. Everything else that we worship in the garden can't offer us that. We took... So, so here we stand. We're not Jews uh, uh, killing prophets, but we are worshiping things in our lives that are in the vineyard. We worship the creation, but not the creator of the vineyard. 
So what does that look like? We talked earlier about if we are to change, we must find something that is more beautiful. It can't be through control, right? We must swap out the source of our worship for a better source of worship. Stop and think, what is the source of your worship? Now, is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it money? Is it power? All of these things will never offer you what you're looking for. And everything in your life is or will be postured to serving that thing to its end. So you might say, well, how could I have rebelled and not spend time with my family I'm in the workplace? Because you worship your workplace. That's why. You're not rebelling. You're perfectly obedient to what you worship. Everything you do, you're perfectly obedient to what you worship. What is it that you are worshiping? What is it? It don't say, oh, I just acted foolishly. You didn't. You acted in very good obedience, whether it was you know, lazy. Oh, why was I lazy? Because you worship your comfort. Oh, why was I late? Because you worship your comfort. You're in perfect obedience to what you worship as being the most primary thing. Everything in your life is postured towards what is your end goal. But now there comes a God who happened to create you, who happened to know how you work because he created you the way that you work, and he doesn't leave you alone. No, he doesn't leave us on an island to figure things out. He sends messengers. He sends people in the church to speak the gospel to one another, but we kill each other. We slander each other in the church. He doesn't stop there. He sends his son to proclaim a kingdom, and you, you killed him. I killed him, and he went willingly. He went gladly. He went drinking down the cup of wrath so that you couldn't. Then he advocated for your peace with the Father and now stands to wait to see you in heaven. Can any other thing that you worship, that you posture your life towards, offer you that? Anything else? Can it do that for you? Everything else aside from him, you give your obedience to, and it does nothing in return. It's like a black hole sucking you up and leaving you dead. But Christ absorbed the black hole of wrath, gave his life unto death so that you might have life. Nothing else can do that for you. Every other idol once desires to be worshipped, but Jesus pursues you so that you can be worshipped, so you can worship him. Everything else just stands there and just waits for your worship. Christ comes for you for the right for your worship. It's a hard word. If you're not a Christian, you need to say, is my life geared towards this? Am I living in a garden that makes me happiest when my job is up, my family is up, and not just constantly satisfied with Christ? And as Christians, you could be a Christian and daily struggle with this. We're constantly constantly looking at fruit that Christ can offer us and don't care much for Christ. We want Christ, uh, you know, we'll read our Bible so that um, he can offer us peace. We read our Bible so that we feel loved. We read our Bible and think, well, God's got a plan for us. And those are all good things, and he does. But Jonathan Edwards says, all of those things, if you read your Bible and praise God for just his love or his, his sovereignty or his wrath, you're using God, you're using Christ because it's something you can get in return. You're using him for the fruit that Christ has to offer. And what he says, the only way that you know that you truly love him is that you love Christ for his holiness. Because there's nothing else, you, you, you can't get anything in return for that. And you find how beautiful he is as creator and what he's done. And you say, not, not, you're not here for me, Christ, I'm here for you because of everything you've done. You don't have to keep doing things for me. You've done enough. You created me. You bought me. You loved me. 
gospel like that needs to be preached daily in our lives because we are so liable to just keep picking fruit and, and just following it. And that's what Paul talks about when preaching the gospel, living by the gospel, gospel in all things, gospel in money, gospel in relationships, gospel in marriage, gospel in why the gospel so much. It doesn't make sense. It just seems like something to get into Christianity. But this is the gospel, is that everything else wants to be worshipped and desired. But Christ, when he is worshipped, everything just, no job can take away our happiness, no divorce, nothing. Because Christ is constant there always. And if he is worshipped, nothing can destroy us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you um, for, uh, I, I just thank you for everything. We worship you for, for the cross, but you created us perfectly to be in relationship with you, to be worshipers so that we could be with you. And yet we take our identity, we take our attention, and we turn it towards the things you created. And in loving those things so much, when you actually wrote yourself into the story and you wrote yourself into our world as a, as a man, we killed you so that we could have the creation that you made. Lord, thank you, Lord, that even amidst our desire for the creation, that that was the plan of salvation, that though we took the vineyard son, uh, owner's son out of the garden to kill him, that was used, that was necessary for the payment to be made for us to be right with you. Nothing else that we worship can do what you've done. Lord, you're so beautiful in that. I pray. Give us a good week and, and some good fellowship here even after the service. In Jesus' name, amen.